build that muscle around asking why, tell me more about that. And I think that creates space because the more you hear that people have reasons for what they do, the more you go into a situation believing, well, I don't understand what Sean's doing here, but I bet he has reasons. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I am so pleased you are here with us today. Before we get into the show, before we listen to our wonderful guest, I have a big favor. If you can please head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review, that would be greatly appreciated. These reviews do help. They help bring wonderful guests like we have today, Dr. Julie Ragatz. I first heard about Dr. Julie Ragatz on the Standard Deviations podcast with Dr. Daniel Crosby. Highly recommend the Standard Deviations podcast. Dr. Crosby is a thought leader in the behavioral finance field. And Dr. Crosby was actually a guest on the Most Hated Effort podcast on episode number 58. Check it out. But during this episode where Dr. Julie Regetz and Dr. Crosby were talking, I was fascinated with the content that they were talking about around financial empathy. And I feel like our industry, the financial services industry, and us as human beings, we can all use a little bit more lessons on how to cultivate empathy, especially around our finances. And that's why I was pleased to have her on the show today. Dr. Julie Regetz has a PhD in philosophy where she spent a lot of time focusing on what did the philosophers have to say about what is a good life? And this has helped Julie in her current roles at Carson Group and how leaning into fears and the discomfort those fears bring often bring us with some of life's most valuable lessons. We spend a lot of time focusing on empathy financial empathy, and how do we cultivate this? We talk about how the system of financial planning has a lot of embedded elements of shame and the impact that that shame is having on us. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating conversation on such an interesting and important topic such as financial empathy. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Julie Regetz. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Julie Regetz. Julie, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me, Sean. Yeah, I'm excited to have a conversation with you. Before we started recording, we were chatting about how I heard you talk about financial empathy on Dr. Daniel Crosby's podcast. And I showed you, I came prepared with my financial empathy anyone t-shirt from Dr. Michael Thomas. So Dr. Thomas, thank you for the shirt. And I feel like I'm prepared for today's conversation with it. <laughs> well, I want a t-shirt. So send that my way. I want one too. I'm a big believer in empathy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, he's got some fascinating financial empathy products, even coffee mugs and sweaters. And I got to get in on this. Yeah. My first question is around money and, and philosophy. So money, it seems, has since its creation, which I just learned this week is about 60,000 years, there's actually evidence. So 
a long time, <laughs> but humans have been trying to determine how much money is needed to be happy, fulfilled. How much money do we need to pursue? How much time of our lives should be used pursuing this thing we call money? Based on your knowledge in the realm of philosophy, which philosopher do you think would be best suited to teach us about this lifelong magical question on how much is enough, how much money or how much time should I be pursuing money? Was there anyone who you think would share some of their wisdom that could help us come to a conclusion if there is even a conclusion? Uh, well, I never lose the opportunity to talk about Aristotle. Okay. So I have a pretty wide ranging background in philosophy and, and I've certainly read you know, a lot of philosophers who talk about a good life and what a good life means. And, and certainly almost every philosopher writing in ethical or political philosophy has an answer to that question. But Aristotle's notion of thinking about ends first and means second, I think is really, really imperative when you think about what a good life is. And it's interesting that you asked that question, Sean, because in, you know, in some of my work at Carson, we talk about, you know, how we want to serve our high net worth or our, you know, private client base as well as we can. And there's been some great books on this topic, and I can't recommend one highly enough called The Legacy Spectrum by Mark Weber, who's really just a tremendous thinker and, and philanthropist in his own right. But, you know, one of the things that Mark Weber talks about is that he hears a lot from clients, and I've certainly heard this as well, you know, how much enough money to leave my kids? And they're always looking for a number. And I think in, in our business, we focus a lot on a number. So I need number X and then I can retire or I want to leave my kids X. And if you actually drill down into that, it's, it's usually because it sounds like a lot or it sounds like a little or it feels just right. I mean, it's very much the Goldilocks approach of trying to determine legacy, which is very much a gut feel of a million seems too much and half a million seems too little. So we'll split the difference. And I think that that might be putting the cart before the horse. Because what I always try to follow up with is say, well, what do you want to do with something? What do you want to do when you're retired? Because that dictates how much money, you know, at a certain basic level, we have to take for granted a floor of, I need to sustain myself and my health and my livelihood. I need to prepare against an eventuality of my, of, of a serious debilitating illness. But from that point, it becomes, what do you want to do? And the same question goes for legacy. What sort of life do you want your children to have? And how can your money help them achieve those goals? Do you want your money to create a floor for your children? so that your children will never have to take out a second mortgage because they've lost a job? Do you want your money to create a series of experiences for your children, such that you're going to fund educational opportunities? But until you answer the question of what it's for, you really can't answer the question, how much? And in our business, we always tend to jump to the question of how much before the question of what it's for. And Aristotle and his work would tell us that that's backwards. Why do you think we jump to the end? It's just easier. I mean, you're a financial planner, you're a certified financial planner. I am, as I shared with you before we start recording, I am working my way to that state. And in answering questions about tax minimization, uh, tax harvesting, you know, answering questions about how do I get to a number is a much easier conversation. It's, it's divorced from emotion. It's divorced from messiness in some ways. There are tools to answer it. You know, how do you answer the question of what's a good life? You don't have software for that. So I think that it's, it's a complicated question in some ways to answer. It requires skill and technology, but it's, it's answerable through a process. And that's why we land. You're making me think of a little bit of what we talked about before the show is how your background's in philosophy and now you're doing the technical CFP. And 
I speak from experience where the CFP and the technical part, what I'm gaining awareness is that that distracted me from answering that tough question. It was easier to focus on the numbers because there is an outcome or there is a right answer. And it wasn't till I started to lean into what, what I would call fear for myself to define what a good life is that I started to realize that, yes, I need to know some of the technical questions, but really what Aristotle is talking about, what you're talking about, and answering that, what should I do with my life or what, what is a good life? It, it, it's a challenging question because we have to face fears. We do have to face fears. And I think that, you know, the other thing is that most people, everyone operates with a tacit understanding of what that is. It's not that we're just asking that question for the first time. You have a rough idea of the good life for you. If you've never articulated it, if you've never written it, you know, that doesn't mean you don't have one. And that's kind of implicitly guided your choices all the way to, to this point. I do too. But it's challenging to, to articulate it. It's certainly challenging to articulate it in the context of a, of a, of a marriage or, or a partnership where you have different ideas of what that looks like as well. And so these questions typically only come up when you're forced to prioritize different things. And that's where financial planners often find themselves in the middle of these, these contentious conversations because you're trying to prioritize, hey, you know, and I'll use an example from my own experience. What's been very important for me, what constitutes being a good parent is, is having sent my kids to, to private schools. And that has had an opportunity cost for my retirement. And my husband and I have not always been fully aligned. And when we bring up conversations, we're not arguing about money. It's never really about the dollars and cents. It's about the fact that I have a vision of what we should do for our children. And he has a vision of how we should protect ourselves. And, and those priorities were not fully in alignment. And until those conversations, it's hard to even start financially planning. And I think that's why people stop. I really do. I think that when you have those clients who come in and it looks like they're gangbusters and it looks like they're committed and then you don't hear for them or they slow off the paperwork. I think it's a lot of that that it's, it's getting in their way. I'll talk about the financial planning system that we're all actors and actresses within in, in the finance industries. If our goal is to help people to live a good life or to help people retire, to, to bring coupleships in alignment, like what you're talking about, I strongly feel that there's a need, and we talked about this before, to reexamine our system that we're part of right now. Because I look at it and, and I've seen myself even perpetuating some sort of shame, like financial shame. And what I mean by that is that we're taught to do these very technical answers. Here's how you retire. Here's how much you need. If you're 45, holy smokes, look at this shortfall. We call it a shortfall. It's like this red line on a graph. It's pretty grim. I've seen it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, sorry, you have been bad. We're saying this on something that probably took them a lot of a lot of effort to come in to talk because they courage. felt bad about it. Courage, thank you. And then you have two people in there who, to your point, with you guys might not see eye. You're an average couple. Most couples don't. And then the advisor gives this red bar. Sorry, you've got to do a lot of stuff. And if our goal is behavior change, what do you think needs to change in our system to prevent this? unintended consequence of financial shame, but I think it doesn't matter what our intentions are. The impact is there. So it does need to be looked at. What would you say if we are looking to really drive proper behavioral change, how can we deal with this financial shame that is part of the system? Yeah. I think what's really interesting is that when you, when you kind of 
you know, again, through through the, the graphic representations and the pictorial representations we have in our financial planning process. And, you know, that's right. It screams short for a short follow. Your plan has an 11% chance of success. And, you know, and that's only if an asteroid hits and, and whatever it is, you know, that that one time it's going to be perfect. I think that when you see people who are not achieving their savings goals or they're not adequately protected, it's typically because they're prioritizing something else. And I think that for planners who tend to be rational and linear, that can be very hard to understand. So you can look at someone's plan and you can see their budget, assuming they've been transparent enough with you, and you can see that they're prioritizing some form of what, what, what we call discretionary spending, which is not a helpful term, over funding protection needs or funding retirement. And one of the questions that I think was so impactful when somebody asked me this, and it wasn't my planner, it was a friend, but she said, why is the private school so important to you? Why is it so important that you are giving up X, Y, and Z? It was a question motivated from a place of curiosity. It was a question motivated from a place of understanding of me and assuming that there was actually an answer to that. It wasn't banana. It wasn't off the rails. That wasn't irrational, that, there, that I had an answer. And for me, I had taken it for granted that this goal was important. And, and articulating that and articulating what I thought this school provided for my, my girls. I have four little girls and the value proposition and the fears I had, if they weren't given kind of a very nurturing, individualized environment, there is very deep, deep concerns I had there. And once we pulled those out, we were able to address them. So I think that when we look at obstacles to savings goals or protection goals, you know, fundamental, you know, blocking and tackling of a plan, and we see that our clients aren't doing things that we think would be rational, given their acknowledged desire to achieve those goals, the simple question, tell me why you're doing X, is really, really important. What gets in the way of you doing X? And more important than that is asking that question again. Empathy at its core is based in in a curiosity about another person's experience. Hi, you seem so smart, Julie. Why are (laughs) you doing that? And I think that opens up a wide variety of I, I really appreciate your answer. And I want to specifically go back to the, the word curiosity. Unless the CFP curriculum has changed, I, I don't recall learning about curiosity. You would know you're doing it now. No, time value of money all day long. Time value of money. Without curiosity, I feel like it's hard to embody elements of empathy. I think it's hard to ask that question, why, without judgments. You, you said something when you're talking about what an advisor could have said about uh, you wanting to go to private school for your children, we think like as advisor, we think, whereas that's just like, if I think you shouldn't do that, Julie, that's just all of my judgments and curiosity is not there. So if we want to move towards this idea of embodying more empathy and in our case, financial empathy, what role you touch on it again, but what role does curiosity play in actually learning how to be empathetic? And, and I really want to focus on that curiosity. Yeah, I think Daniel Crosby said something really impactful when I had a chance to talk to him. I think it was in the podcast and he was sharing his experience as a clinician. And he said, and I'm going to paraphrase this badly, but it was essentially whenever I heard a story of my client, I couldn't help but like them or I stopped disliking them. And I think that's really impactful. When we know people's stories or narratives behind their action, it's, it's disarming. So hearing, and I'll just use my personal example, you know, I have four daughters, they're all under nine. 
the school they go to is an all girls school. It's, it's very nurturing. It's, it's very expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But if you ask me why it has a lot to do with my childhood experience and the support that I wish I would have had and kind of my commitment deep down that those girls, that my girls were going to have advantages that, that I didn't and, 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 protections or whatever that is. And, and my fear of raising girls and the, there's a whole story there. And I think that if you were to see numbers on a page and see the opportunity cost of those numbers, you might think, wow, she's really, you know, is she pursuing it for some sort of elitism or is she pursuing it because she doesn't understand? But I think if you, if you're curious enough to ask, well, you hear is it, is a deeply founded reason why? And that I think opens up and disarms the advisor. You would see them simple things, you know, why are you, you know, why are you insisting on staying in this house, <laughs> you know, when it would only make sense for you to sell, right? And you've got repairs and, and it's eating away at your, your, your living expenses. And, and again, though, tell me more is one of my favorite questions to ask. Tell me more about why this house is important to you. Just tell me more about it. Tell me what you like about living in that house. Tell me why that's, you know, tell me the memories you have. And then I think even if you were never able to move them to selling it, which might be financially in their interest, you now are disarmed and come at them from a place of understanding. And that enables you to share their goals better. I mean, this can go from a personal conversation with a friend to a spouse to the financial planning conversation. And I like how you you talked about to get that level of understanding. And I, I believe at some level, we all want to be understood and to to add that into a conversation around money, I feel like is a wonderful gift. I think that what the financial advisor plays here is really important. And again, I kind of rely on my own personal experience. Then that, you know, I remember when our advisor did, we were just, we were working with a new advisor and he laid out, you know, our cash flow analysis. And he actually wrote, he missed a zero on the educational expenses. And I pointed it out and he, he felt very chagrined. And I said, no, it's completely reasonable. You wouldn't think it costs that much. Like, no, like you're fine. Like, but yeah. he's like, well, that changes things, Julie. <laughs> <laughs> you watch everything go from green to red, you know, real time, you know, my retirement blowing up. And, and I think what was helpful in that moment is because of his expertise, the expertise that a planner brings to a situation. And this is one of the most important things I think advisors do that is not talked about as much which is he was able to point out the opportunity cost and the consequences of those decisions in a way that my husband or my friend or anybody else would. This is actually, and I saw it in real time, right? You know, this is what it's going to look like, Julie. What it's going to look like is that you're not going to work. You're, you're, you're going to have to work two or seven, right? These are the consequences of this decision. And that's, I'm not going to, I'm going to understand that's important to you. We're going to take your goals and we're going to walk it in. But this is the sort of implications that's going to have for the rest of your plan. This is what it's going to have for your retirement date. This is what it's going to have for your own personal retirement lifestyle. That knowledge was so important to me. You know, even this is what it's going to have for your protection needs if you want to secure that. This is what it's going to do for their college savings account. And all of a sudden, new information was provided to me to help me make a decision better but only because I felt that that planner under that my advisor understood that, Hey, this is really important. And it wasn't about moving me. It was just about showing me the whole story. And that's such, so impactful. I think of, of what advisors can bring to a family's relationship. I mean, that's why we go see an advisor. And I, I just really appreciate that example of them giving that understanding, which 
what I hear, it created the trust level for them to then provide some suggestions, which it seems like you didn't feel judged or any judgment coming at you. No, and I think that it's, and that again, it comes from that orientation of curiosity. I think that, you know, one of the things I think that you learn in, in behavioral economics and behavioral finance, and, and this is a challenge, and frankly, I mean, it's not a politics podcast, but this is a challenge in our society in general which is to understand that people who disagree with you aren't stupid. You know, people can disagree with me about things and they think they're making decisions for good reasons with good evidence. And if you begin from an orientation that people are not intelligent, that they're irrational, that they need my guidance, then that just closes off all conversations. So I think that one of the things that I try to think about and talk about is and I have appreciated what people have done. So for me, I wouldn't make this decision, but I'm sure this person has reasons for having it. I may not think those are good reasons or sound reasons or legitimate reasons. I may disagree with their evidence, but, but I'm sure they have some. So let's talk about that. And I think that that openness is hard to maintain, but I think it's a vital. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree anymore. And I, I can't recall any situation where someone came at me in, if they disagreed with like a combative perspective that I was like, oh yeah, you're right. You're right. You know what? I'm not right. <laughs> where I, I know even myself, like I've had to replace my rigidity and my thoughts with this curiosity to be more flexible and be open to like, who would have thought Sean doesn't have it figured out. And okay, that, that actually, hey, that feels good. And I think the, the thing you mentioned earlier, which is so important is like, you know, what do we want to get to? Well, ultimately, what we want to get to is behavior change to achieve a goal that the client wants, right? That, that's what we, the client has goals. They articulate those if they're exhibiting behaviors that are preventing. So, so again, going back to my example, I want to secure retirement. I don't want to work till I'm 90, right? Okay, well, you say that, Julie. So how important is that goal towards your other goals? And then if you have an obstacle to achieving it, how do I help your behavior change? Doctors do the same thing sometimes well and sometimes not. So a million and a half years ago, because I am, I am a child of the 80s and 90s, I smoked, right? I smoked cigarettes. Hard to believe people ever did that. And I remember somebody came up to me once and said, you should stop that. It's bad for you. This is bad? Bad. Thank you, kind stranger. I'm very, very smart alecky in my early 20s. Thank you, kind stranger, for informing me that this is bad. I didn't know that, and now I'll change. Well, of course, I was being a smart aleck, and they were being annoying. And that sort of, that, that attitude never works. It just doesn't. And so doctors, you know, say, well, you need to put smoking. Well, of course people know that. And of course they know it's bad. And yet they don't, just like people need to save more. And they don't, right? So, so what are some of the obstacles to do that? You're smoking because you get something from it. It's a successful behavior for you. And I can't deny that. And I don't want to deny that. I want to figure out how to get you where we both want you to by removing this obstacle. But we tend not to, we tend not to, with kind of compassion in that way. No. And uh, as your smoking example gives, it, it doesn't work usually when we don't. <laughs> I mean, I quit years later. Yeah. <laughs> you know, financially, we make decisions about saving, about spending that our, our, success, that our experience is successful for us. And at some point, they may become unsuccessful. I mean, even, you know, heck, even Scrooge is a great example of that, right? Scrooge made decisions about saving and spending that filled the need in him or spoke 
to something important and need he had or concern he had. And then eventually those behaviors became unsuccessful and got in the way of a good life. And so I think that we look at and look how far we've gotten from kind of the blocking and tackling and exits and O's of financial planning. Because really, in, in many ways, money is how people work out some of their you know, deepest concerns, anxieties, and fears. And they're worked out through money. They're worked out through our spending and our savings patterns. And, and pretending that that's not true and that all you're dealing with is wealth maximization and tax minimization misses a lot of it. And there will be clients who, who do not want you for that service. And there will be advisors who have no interest in kind of having these deeper conversations. And I think that's fine too. Finances are a window into what's really going on if we sit and take the time and back to that curiosity. Now, if, if someone's listening and we're talking about empathy and when we talk about financial empathy, it's adding the empathy around someone's financial life, their money story. Whether we're a financial planner or even a couple or an individual who deals in partnership with money, when we're trying to really cultivate empathy, and like I said before the show, I thought I knew what empathy was until I had to really utilize empathy. And then I was like, oh, I just knew the definition. Is it possible to learn the skills of being empathetic without going through its potential messiness? Great question. I go back to two great thinkers, right? Daniel's going to love this, right? Because I'm giving him a shout out with Aristotle. I'll have to tell him that later. Aristotle says, is that repeated behaviors become a habit, right? Aristotle, you know, great, great codifier of common knowledge, even in 450 BC. And uh, we build our dispositions and our character through our habits. And that's just, that feels like a, like a true statement, right? If you want to become a liar, lie a lot. If you want to become courageous, do brave things, right? That's not, not rocket science. Aristotle was very bright that way, that he understood the obvious. So how do you become an empathetic person if you don't feel empathy? Well, you, you demonstrate it. And I think this goes with what Daniel said, is that the more you learn about people and their stories, the easier it is to be empathic to them. And then that creates a positive feedback. So, you know, we can define empathy in a million different ways, right? Is empathy a skill? Is it a disposition? Is it an innate character trait? I don't know. But what I do believe is that you can create the disposition to be empathic through repeated exercises of empathy. And that really is taking that pause and asking yourself that backwards question. That's so interesting you did that. Why? I think it works with children too. You know, I think it works with everybody. Tell me why you did that is such an interesting way to open up a conversation. Tell me more about that. And I think that if you are, and that also feels like an organic, not overly invasive way to introduce empathy into your client interactions. We want to travel, we want a retirement plan where we are taking one international trip of 10 days duration every year. That's so interesting. Tell me more about the travel bug. Tell me why that's important to you. Tell me what about that's important to you. And again, and you just build that muscle around asking why. Tell me more about that. And I think that creates space because the more you hear that people have reasons for what they do, the more you go into the situation believing, well, I don't understand what Sean's doing here, but I bet he has reasons. And that becomes your orientation. Your answer makes me think of two different situations. One was this morning, it's my wife's birthday and my little five-year-old son was helping me prep everything. And all of a sudden he was super sad 
And it was just kind of moping. And my initial reaction was like, stop pouting. Like, what are you doing? We're having fun. <laughs> and then I'm like, hey, Lewis, what's going on? And he's like, Maddie, Madeline's her daughter, as his sister. He's like, Maddie sneezed on the cookie I made for mom. And now she can't eat it. <laughs> and it just, to your point, like I asked him why, but initially I was like, it's her birthday. Come on. Like I've been running in the morning, getting things ready. And get your behavior in line, you know, yeah. and, and that's, and it's hard to do that. And kind of parenting with, it drives my husband bananas, you know, drive, parenting with what I call radical empathy is, you know, he's like, just, just send him to their room, Julie. And I'm more yeah. like, tell me what just happened yeah. here. And he's like, and there's probably, he's, I'm sure he's right. Mike's right about most things. But I do think that it is a very helpful construct to use as we engage with our clients. Tell me more about that. And the belief that people do have, it's just so important. And we see we see what happens when we stop thinking our fellow citizens have reasons for what they do. And I think it reduces those judgments. And as a planner, my conversations have drastically changed as I introduce the curiosity to seek to understand them. And the things that you hear now is like, oh, yeah, unbelievable. My my father always looked up to this neighbor who had so much money and said that he wanted to be like that, but he couldn't be so I'm always trying new businesses and they're failing and it's making me broke because I want my dad to see that I'm rich. I've heard ones like that. Uh, it's all there. And that's what's so, and that's why it must be interesting to be a podcast host because I think that in some ways it forces you, you to really engage with other people's narratives in a way we don't do in everyday life. I think that is a really, probably that probably builds up your empathic muscle too because of the beliefs that when you want to have something to say and it's your job to figure out what it is. And the best interviewers are the ones who help people figure out what they, what, what unique they can say. And so in some ways, it's a skill very analogous to being a financial planner. I'm a professor, so I just. You, you make me think of something. And I think it was on uh, Daniel Crosby's podcast where you talked about the, like reciprocity. And, and as a, I want to go to the professor as a professor where you just say, you just talk. You guys were talking about, I think it was around when Dr. Crosby was talking about those clients that he didn't like and he, he started to understand them. And you gave the idea of this reciprocity. How can reciprocity enhance our relationships, whether it's a professor who might just normally think I'm just speaking to them? I imagine you get something from that. And how, oh, yeah. if all, has that changed you as a professor, this reciprocity? reciprocity reciprocity it's a toughie it is and i've said it so many times so for yourself and planners and people trying to deal with money well i think that you know probably as as something that i learned very early on and i taught ethics classes and those are usually you get a bunch of financial advisors who are pretty successful and they're going to learn two days of ethics and and I was like, I was like the most dreaded class in the Masters of Science rotation. Like no one wanted two days of ethics, which I frankly, having seen a lot of the ethics content out there, I like totally signed on to that. I was like, I wouldn't want two, two, two days of that either. And so I would always tell people, well, I'm playing in a ground of very low expectations. And so that, that at least was good. But what I would do is that, you know, you all might get people to talk about their ethical dilemmas, their, their conflicts and their experiences. And so how reciprocity worked with that was that I was just always very transparent. And fortunately, I'm a deeply flawed person who makes lots of mistakes. And I would bring that into the classroom. And I would talk about dilemmas I had had or, or conflicts I had had. 
or moral blind spots I had had. And I would just lay that out there and say, you know what, this is my attempt to create a safe space. And obviously, you know, they're appropriate for, you know, I didn't try my 10 deadly sins, right? But they were appropriately disarming that I think it created a space in which people were willing to share. And so in that case, reciprocity in a, in a classroom was always based on kind of being the first mover, the person who's going to be transparent first. And that's not everybody's pedagogical style. It worked for me because I was teaching adults who were, you know, pretty sophisticated consumers of educational content and had good stories to share. And I think that would be different if you were in a college classroom, which I did not apply it in this way. But I do think that bringing something of yourself, your authentic self to the table um, is always a good way to create that principle of reciprocity. I think what Daniel mentioned, and, and I've certainly thought a lot about, is that that's not always, that's not appropriate in a, in a client advisor relationship. So you probably wouldn't want to go in, Sean, and be like, yeah, believe me, I get how hard it is to budget when I was so and so I blew, you know, I had $70,000 and got a card down. I mean, I'd probably be like, I think I'm going to go take my business elsewhere, right? Or, you know, so that's not appropriate either. But I do think that oftentimes opening up to your clients, even if it's not your experience, even if it's experiences of other clients you've had where that's appropriate and, and confidentiality is respected, creating a space in which you are communicate that you're willing to get in and engage in messiness. People, and I've mentioned this before, people have a sixth sense for when other people don't want to hear their messiness. People have amazing abilities to detect one, when they're being condescended to, and two, when other people don't want to hear what they have to say. We're actually really, really good at sensing openness and sensing and sensing condescension or, or being demeaned. And so people's senses for that alert very quickly and sometimes falsely. So I think it's the goal of the planner to create a space where you can say what you want to say here. And I will respect that and I will honor that and I will engage with you about that to the extent you're comfortable. And we will together build a plan that reflects your deepest desires, hopes, dreams, aspirations. That creating safe, creating that safe place is so important in conversations. It is. And it's, it's not easy. And, you know, um, it's not, but I think that what comes from that is very, very worthwhile. I can't recall if this was your work or I, I, I wrote down some notes on things I want to talk about. And you brought up teaching ethics. So this is making me think about it. Can empathy cause us to erode our ethical decision making? So that's a really good question. It's, it's one that I think we have to be very cognizant of. And I would probably make a couple of points in relation to it. The first is is that so there's a couple of kind of possible ways to go wrong. And the first is, is that our empathy or our deep sense of understanding of somebody else's situation may cause us to commit an act that is immoral or wrong. And so an example of this would be, oh my gosh, this is like the classic example, right? That you have a client who filled out an insurance policy, you know, but didn't submit it. And then they, you know, pass and you've got this deep, deep empathy for the situation, deep sympathy, and you decide to make a poor decision, an illegal decision, a wrong decision out of a basis of concern. And, and is that decision wrong? Well, of course it's wrong, right? It, it, was it motivated by selfish gain? Of course not, but that doesn't mean it's not wrong. So I think that our, our fellow feeling for other people can be tempting to have us break rules we know we shouldn't break. For the most part, I've, I'm less worried about that, but that I do think that that's, that's something that could happen. The other question that I think is maybe more nuanced regarding what you're asking is, does empathy and 
having empathy erode or compromise our ability to judge whether something's right or wrong. And I think that's a, that, that's a trick. So I can understand why someone is engaging in poor saving and spending decisions, right? So imagine you had a client and they're engaging in reckless spending. Every month you're called on to liquidate something to pay off a five-figure credit card bill. And you've talked to them about this and the spending doesn't stop. And maybe their, their portfolio can handle this for a while. So you've kind of given it a pass and you made your concerns, you created your documentation. And maybe you, you have a conversation, you start to understand why that spent, you know, that spending is being caused by some, you know, maybe mental issues or, or some psychological issues or grieving issues. Can you not judge that as, as wrong or reckless? Well, I think you can. I, I think you can look at people who are making bad decisions and say, that's a bad decision. And I know, even though I understand why. And so I think it's separating and we don't tend to do this very well in our society. I think that is a wrong decision. And I still understand that you have a process with reasons you think are good. And I may not condemn you as a person because of that. I think the, the biggest thing though, what empathy does allow us to do is it allows us to see, I would view it as morally expanding. When I'm empathic to a person, I see needs I wouldn't have before. I see opportunities to help. I see opportunities to engage. We call it objects of moral concern. I see people who are entitled to my care. And that can be exhausting too, right? Deeply empathic people have a hard time exhibiting a world of pain. And, and so there's, there's certainly an opportunity cost there. But I do think it's possible to understand and yet not accept or, or tolerate. And so those two are different concepts. Wow, I, I really appreciate that answer. It makes me think of this idea of holding two opposing beliefs at the same time and how much maturity that takes. Yes. And as a society, we can all get better, me included. And you know, Adam Grant's book, Think Again, I think he did a, a good yep. job addressing that topic. Yes, he did. I can imagine that in the back of your brain, there's all these ideas on how philosophy and financial planning could be integrated more. If you had a just a canvas, you can do whatever you want to add more philosophy, the teachings, the learnings of philosophy, philosophy into the realm of financial planning. Is there any things that you would point out or, or give suggestions that are percolating in your brains? You no. Know, I mean, I tend to think that philosophy makes everything better. I think that probably would say three things. And one of which we've talked about a lot, which is the one thing philosophy for better or worse is known for is asking big questions. And I mean, the audacity of writing a book that covers what it means to have a good life is something that, or what's the just political system. I mean, philosophers don't shy away from <laughs> saying, I've got an answer to what's the most just political system. I mean, most of us would be like, maybe not me, maybe I'm not going to. But not philosophers, right? We're really good at that, right? And so I think that broadening it to philosophy's extent of asking big questions, big, audacious, unanswerable questions about what a good life is, about, about the role of money in, in contemporary society, about how we value things. And that's maybe something that we haven't talked much about, but I think is really worth thinking through. It does go back to that first conversation we had about that dollar figure versus the what's it for. I mean, it comes down to how we value experiences. I was talking to an advisor the other day who had a client who was, you know, $100 million you know, client. He disclosed to her, you know, I'd be okay living on $5 million. I don't need this. 
And I mean, that's just such an interesting mindset, you know, that his quality of a good life. And I mean, I could live comfortably at $5 million yeah. too, don't get me wrong. But it goes back to some of that research you opened with, which is, you know, the question of money and happiness. And, and there's certainly interesting research out on that. So asking about value, right? And diminishing returns and, and what does that mean? And, and how we value experiences and why we value money and why we value what money can do. So I think philosophy at point one is good at asking big questions that don't have any Two, this is a little bit more esoteric. I think that some of the academic theories in our business, and you've heard I recently, I don't want to date the podcast too much, but in the last couple of weeks or months, there've been conversations about the 4% rule. And that's been buzzing all over social, all over FinTwit and social media. And everyone's weighed in on that. And, and um, you know, I'm so in CFP mode. I'm like, I can't think yeah, about that. Yeah. You know, I think that the academic finance, academic financial planning, practitioner financial planning. I think that the opportunity here, and it's really a great merger because we have so many practical applications of our theories on a regular basis, which is really unique for a science that you can have a theory and you can watch it play out very quickly in real time. We have like a series of natural experiments that happen all the time because these different planners adapting these, you know, different planning philosophies very spontaneously. I think that being more, one thing philosophy is very good at is demanding that you call out your assumptions. And I think we could be better at that as an industry. So, you know, if you click on your financial planning software, it'll, it'll kind of tell you what the financial numbers are, but you know, how did, did you get this number, right? If you click the button, it'll tell you what the, what, the, what the guiding assumptions were, but we're not really good at defending those or fully pulling those out or thinking about those. And I'd like to see our business and our profession get better at defending our fundamentals. And I think philosophy could help with that. And then third, I think that one of the challenges, you know, that our industry faces is, is thinking about who to believe. And that's something that philosophy has some, and that, again, not to make this, I'm feeling very, very, you know, societally minded. No, that's this, good. Is a, this is a problem <laughs> in our society in general. Yeah. It's something I think a lot about, and it's called the epistemic authority. And that is essentially what that means is epistemology is the Greek comes from the Greek word of, of knowledge, the, the, the science of knowledge. Who do you believe in why? And that's such an interesting question in our society writ large. You know, do, you believe the gov- do you believe government organizations? Do you believe the media? If so, which media do you believe? When you look to get a financial plan, are you looking at Yelp reviews? Are you looking at Google? Are you getting a, a referral from one of your centers, of, you know, one of your other practitioners? Do you listen to Dave Ramsey? Do you listen to Susie Orman? Do you listen to Sean? Do you listen to Jamie Hopkins? Right? So, I mean... It's an interesting question of who has authority to speak. And the democratization of finance has been, I think, overall a very positive development. But what it's created is kind of a free-for-all. And so who should have authority to speak, how, how people can suss out who to listen to and whose advice to take, I think is a, is a question that philosophy can contribute to. Do we crowdsource? Do we, what, is, what does it look like in a field in which authority is still emerging? You know, and again, that 4% rule debate was very interesting with that too, because we were waiting for people to weigh in mm-hmm. and, and who was going to weigh in and what were they going to say? And I thought that was interesting from the point of view of someone who studied truth formation and consensus in science. I thought that was, those would be my three reasons. I appreciate that. And I, I feel like I have, 24 different follow-up questions, but I, I want to respect <laughs> our, our four minutes left. There's no right or wrong here, but do you feel you can live a good life without having a guiding philosophy that helps you stay grounded in your decision-making? No. Okay. 
I don't. I think that people need to live their life according to principles. Yes. And that incoherence, you know, the Greek the word for integer or integrity is integer and it means wholeness. It essentially means completeness. It means always being the same. And I think that a guiding principle of life, of which you can have good ones and bad ones, in my, you know, I would make arguments, I won't just say in my opinion, is important for both consistency and coherence, which is essential for a good life. That was an easy. Well, uh, that hockey player. <laughs> that is a softball question. <laughs> that hockey player, his name's Theron Fleury. I'm released the podcast episode next week, but he told me that finding, surrendering to a guiding principle in his life saved his life. He said he had a, he had a gun in his mouth and without that, he had no, he was, he, he said he was too much in here and he can't live there. So the, my final question that I ask everyone is let's pretend you're at end of life, whatever age that is, it doesn't matter. You could be wherever brings you peace, joy, a sense of at ease. It could be looking at an ocean, a meadows, mountain, doesn't matter. And you decide to write a letter to your children's children on what you learned to have a healthy, healthy and happy relationship with money. What would be a theme of that letter? Dear children of my children, who I will never have met because I'm way too old when I had my children to begin with. You've probably never heard of me. <laughs> I'm your great-grandmother, Julie. Now, and here's what, here's what I have learned. Envision the life you want. Think about the experiences that are going to bring you joy and promote growth. Create the life you want and use money to fill in the gaps. Only work till you get, you know, in terms of your compensated labor. Direct that towards the, towards the goals you want. Money is not to be pursued for its own sake. And you don't need more than you want to achieve your goals. But also say this, compensated labor and uncompensated labor are two different things and both are equally valuable. Ah, labor is something that gives you joy. It uses your talents. It may not always be joyful, but it's completion gives you joy. You can have a job for which you're compensated and you can do very well at it and do very good things with it. But that doesn't need to define your identity. Make sure your labor is expended in things that are uncompensated. Well, thank you so much for sharing. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, so fun. If people were interested in some of your work you've done, things at the Carson Group, what would you, what would you say? Yeah. Is anybody going to be interested? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I am, uh, I'm active on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Uh, well, actually not on Twitter. I think. You're, you're studying. I'm a philosopher. I can't yeah. be constrained to 250 characters. <laughs> yeah. But I'm active on Twitter and I would welcome the chance to connect with anybody to talk more. How about you, you mentioned the legacy spectrum book at the start. What about if someone's like, you know what? I want to start being curious about philosophy and having this guiding principle. This would be a very probably challenging question, but based on what we've talked about in around in around philosophy, is there a book that you feel that someone might pick up and be able to start their journey? This might be um, somewhat controversial because he's much more liberally minded, but I don't think you need to agree with his politics to appreciate his book or his books, but I would recommend anything by uh, Michael Wolzer or Michael Sandel. Those are two contemporary philosophers out of, I think, you know, Ivy League universities that write meaningfully on money and justice. And I think that at the very least, it opens up, you may not agree with their policy recommendations, but it opens up this notion, which I think is really important as money being the access to goods and 
it being really just a conduit to goods and to think hard about the goods you think will make up a choice-worthy life for yourself. And you can broaden that to society or not, but I think they provide a good framework to do that. And Aristotle's Nicomachina, everyone should. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation and I appreciate your time. Oh, it was wonderful to be with you. Thank you for having me, Sean. Thank you for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Julie Brackett. If you've been enjoying these episodes, please share one with a friend, colleague, roommate, whomever you might think will enjoy these conversations and help spread the word. Until next week, have yourself a good one.